Welcome to Food Futurists, a podcast series to really sink your teeth into. Here we look at the solutions being put in place today to bring tomorrow's meal to your table. Hello, I'm Andy Lowe, and for this episode of Food Futurists, recording from EvocAG, the Asia-Pacific region's largest agri-food tech event, my guest is Damon Gamow, actor and filmmaker. Damon. Hi. Hi, Andy. Thanks very much for joining us here today. I was uh, really looking forward to having a bit of a chat with you. I think some of your recent documentaries, that Sugar Film and also 2040, you've really focused on some of the problems with our society's overconsumption of uh, uh, some key aspects, but also offered hope and a solution and a way forward Mm. for that. What was your motivation behind that to make that type of film? Why did you pick those types of topics uh, for your films? Uh, well, I guess both of them have been motivated by being a father. The first sugar one was um, our first daughter was born and we've since had another daughter as well. So that's um, a major factor. But also I think um, I'm a big fan of documentaries, but often think that you can get maybe 89, 90 minutes of how bad things are and then there's only two or three positive things at the end and I really wanted to sort of change that narrative a little bit and sort of look at the problems but through a solutions framework. So I think there's a lot of research now, some uh, neuroscience around how our brain responds to the constant negativity and the doom and gloom, especially when it comes to climate and the environment. There's a, that apocalyptic narrative can activate parts of our brain that shut down other parts of our brain that uh, problem solve and, and think creatively. So I think it's really important that um, you know we are, as well as sounding that fire alarm, we're also showing people where the exits are and I feel like that's been really missing. So I just want to to um, you know, throw lob that pebble into the pond and see what happens. Yeah. And um, I think you know, especially with 2040, we've just seen we've got evidence now of the response that people have had to the film and how they've helped us bring to life a lot of the solutions we show in the film um, by actually motivating them through positive stories and, and the possibility of a better outcome yeah. as opposed to just scaring them and how bad things are. So I guess you can kind of uh, dip your toe in the water uh, mm. for the, this kind of uh, filmmaking narrative with the sugar. Uh, because mm-hmm. that, that's a relatively tractable uh, kind yeah. of problem. It's a single issue. Mm. You can make some dietary changes. You know, good health reasons why you would do that. There's, uh, there's yep. a clear narrative. You know, the reason that we do it again, as, as you showed in the uh, in the documentary, mm. is around uh, probably uh, promotion and marketing uh, mm-hmm. for for sugar over fat. Mm. But with climate change, it's a much more complex set of issues. A lot of mm. interacting uh, kind of issues. And the, the nice thing around 2040, and it's probably old news uh, for you now um, is that you broke it down into key elements where you could actually do something about those solutions and you broke it down into the key elements that are contributing Mm -hmm. to the climate change problem so you start with energy Mm -hmm. and then you go through transport and then you go into regenerative agriculture and the restoration side and repair Mm -hmm. side Mm -hmm. so I really enjoyed narrative uh, Mm -hmm. I'm an environmental scientist uh, by training and by background Mm -hmm. And when I saw that your film was out, I thought, oh, that's, that's interesting. I wonder kind of what direction it's going to take. Because I think, as you say, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of doom and gloom yeah. uh, out there. And certain authors who we don't need to uh, mention have really focused on the doom aspect. Mm-hmm. But then that leads to a paralysis uh, of action because mm-hmm. you're just overwhelmed uh, by the issues. So how did you 
how did you go around picking the solutions? Because it, it was, you know, I, I think you started with the sol- well, you, you went climate change, okay, now let's mm. start with the solutions and mm. go for that. So how did you identify the kind of four or five key solutions that are actually covered off in the documentary? Yeah, well, as you alluded to, I think that I started off by accepting the reality that this is a systemic problem, that there is no silver bullet. There's not one thing we can do. And then from there, I really looked at what is the underlying, I guess, cause of some of these problems. And, you know, we have ostensibly, I think, created a system that is, is based very much on competition and rivalry. And it's sort of... Um, at, we've, we've generated wonderful things. We've done benefits for billions of people. But those benefits have often come at the expense of our living systems. We don't factor those in the externalities. So what I wanted to do was say, OK, well, how do we shift... Um, by 2040 to moving away from some of these things that are, are deleterious to us and the planet. What are these solutions that would actually not just solve the climate issue, because that's one factor, but also have this raft of other cascading benefits that we'd actually want to do anyway, even if climate change wasn't a problem. Let's do these because they help our soils or they regenerate the oceans or they empower and educate girls and women. And the thinking there was also to get this debate out of this, because I think, as you know, climate change has become such a triggering word for people that it just shuts them down or they only talk about the science. And I think we have to be smarter with how we communicate moving forward and what's the language we use. Not everyone resonates with the words anthropogenic and negative emissions and zero targets. They don't stir the soul. We are a species that's evolved to tell stories. And I think the more we can communicate our issues through a lens of health, stronger communities, uh, better future for our children. I think we've got a much better chance of bringing more people in. So that was really the criteria to find the solutions. What were, they had to be something that benefited a range of different things. They didn't just pull carbon out of the atmosphere. Because I think if we just build these giant sucking machines on the edge of our cities, or what's trees, the point? Yeah. What's the point? Yeah, exactly. But we've got, there's so many other things that aren't, I mean, as you know better than anyone, we, we, climate change is, is stealing all the thunder, but it is one symptom of a multiple multitude of symptoms that is giving us feedback about things that aren't working. So I think, um, you know, we've just got to be a bit smarter with how we communicate this and bring more people in. Yeah, that's right. Mm. And, I mean, you know, the narrative has changed around uh, climate change. It was global warming. It was diluted down to uh, a less offensive term, uh, climate change. You're probably moving into kind of global change and environmental change as a kind of... Uh, as you move further away from yeah. the actual problem, but uh, you broaden the narrative uh, and the description to bring more people in. That's so, right. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Uh, I think that's right. Um, I think uh, the the other the other thing that struck me about uh, 2040 um, is what's been the kind of follow up uh, for that. So, uh, look, one of the one of the aspects that was really interesting was the potential to. Uh, enter into large-scale carbon sequestration through marine systems. Yeah. And typically when we think about, uh, you know, landscape and land restoration, we think around planting trees. Mm. I, I, I like planting trees. <laughs> I uh, engage in that. I engage in NGOs that do that. Mm. We, we try to do that. But this opportunity to seed the ocean and provide the carbon uh, fixation, sequestration within the ocean, because if it mm. drops down, then it gets permanently sequestered uh, right. in the ocean bed. And of course, 70% of the area of the Earth is ocean, mm. so you're not, and you're not competing with other production Spot systems. Yeah. And also, you know, you probably fish like it uh, yeah, if they've got right. some cover and things. So yeah. ha- uh, that, that was one of the things for me, that was, that was a really interesting concept. So how's that, how's that developed since you actually 
did the film and uh, is there any follow-up with that? Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's a solution to film that people get very excited about when they see. Um, for people that are new to that, it, we're talking about seaweed. Yeah. Basically, it's one of the fastest growing organisms in the world and can grow half a metre a day and, and up to 50 metres long. So it's able to sequester huge amounts of carbon out of the atmosphere and then has, all, again, all these cascading benefits of creating marine habitats for fish and alkalising the water. And So that was something that people resonated with and got really excited about. And, and I wanted to make sure that with the film, often when you watch a documentary, you have that moment after it's just finished where you're opened up in some capacity. You're actually ready to engage in some way, whether it's out of anger and frustration or inspiration, and often there's nowhere to go. And because of the inertia of our system, suddenly you're back on social media again and you've kind of that, that energy is dissipated 10 minutes later. Yeah. So we built a platform off the back of the film which was ostensibly a, like an impact or outreach campaign that gave people entry points to particular things that might have resonated within the film. So if you love the region ag section, there was a part for you to get involved and donate or equity crowdfund or invest, whatever you wanted to do. And it was the same with the seaweed. And we just were uh, overwhelmed with the response we got there that we were able to um, build the first seaweed platform, which is what we show in the film, uh, by working with the University of Tasmania and the Intrepid Foundation. They matched fund any dollar we got, so we raised over $600,000 just through people's $10 and $15 donations to actually make that happen. So we're now uh, working in Tassie to, to do that. I've just been down to see the first seaweeds go in the water there, uh, and Tassie's a really good place to do it because they've lost about 95% of their kelp because of the warming ocean. It's just wiped out all the kelp along the east coast there. Yeah. So they've gone to find the different species, test them in the waters, and now now we've planted them out there and uh, one of the seaweeds we've planted is alongside one of the fish pens there, the, the hewen, and actually, and we've got a controlled side away from that, but it's interesting that the seaweeds are growing faster off the side of the fish pens because they think they're absorbing the ammonia and the nitrates that are coming off the fish and actually accelerating the growth. So yeah. it's, it's really wonderful to think that that's just come from people watching a film gone, yep, I love that, how can I help? And they're helping do it. So again, it's it's very strong evidence, I think, that people are responding well to solutions. Yeah. People want things to do. Uh, they don't want to feel that paralysis anymore. They're just saying, give me some entry points. And I think we can be less prescriptive than we have been. I think we've just relied on saying to people, eat less meat and ride your bike to work. Not everyone wants to do that. So we've got to make sure we're just catering to everyone's interests and passions. And I think when we do that, we've got a better chance of them seeing that through because they're more aligned to that. So, I mean, that was one of the things that I liked about the documentary as well. There's lots of things to like about mm. it, by the way. Uh, but um, you kind of uh, steered away from the traditional uh, individual-based, uh, you know, get solar power, buy a Tesla, uh, eat less meat, go and plant a tree in your garden, okay? So those are probably five things, mm. four or five things that you could do uh, individually. But the focus of the film was around investment, it was around mm. potentially taking ideas forward, um, commercialising and realising opportunities for those ideas yeah. within uh, the societal framework that we had. Now, you need... You know, you need policy you need action, yeah. you need individual action, but you mm. need this activity that's going to have the multiple benefits that also is going to make, you know, to be frank, the money uh, to help drive uh, change within the system. Yeah, that's yeah. right. No, I don't think there's any yeah. set way. We need we need that. Um, there's a great uh, a line, I can't remember it properly now, but it was a street vendor in the Philippines said that like, the best way to bake a, a rice cake is to heat it from the bottom and the top. Yeah. And I think that's a great metaphor for this. We all need to take our own individual action. That's really important because we actually send cues to each other. We're such social animals that there's really interesting studies saying that, you know, if you put solar panels on your roof, the chances of your neighbour putting solar panels go up exponentially because we're sending cues to each other about what's acceptable now. And I think we're seeing that with keep cups and whatnot as well. And so that needs to happen, yes. 
but there's no doubt, you know, some of these problems, as we know, are systemic and we need much large decisions being made at, at a larger level than, like you said, shifting money or different policy. Uh, I don't think we can tinker around the edges to fix this problem. It's, it's actually offering us up a fundamentally different way to interact with each other and all of our living systems. Yeah. So uh, we're here at Evocag. I saw you walking around uh, earlier, looking at some of the, uh, the different stands and stalls and uh, having a bit of a chat with people. I mean, there's a pretty amazing uh, kind of spectrum mm. of different things on show here, uh, right across the kind of ag sector. So from you know, robots and drones in the field, right through to you know, food processing technologies. And uh, you know, 2040 will now be the, uh, the ancient history for you now. <laughs> Uh, I'm sure you'll be looking at the next thing uh, mm. you'll be doing. Have you had any ideas of uh, what might form 2050 uh, <laughs> as a concept uh, from some of the, uh, the things that you've seen here today or some of the other things that you're aware of? Because mm. uh, you know, what, I, what I've seen within the agriculture sector is just this incredible technology collision uh, mm. that's coming and you're getting sensors from the medical area and you're getting you know um, electrical engineers coming in mm. people that wouldn't have traditionally worked in the ag sector mm. but through technology then it's colliding in that space yeah. so I just wondered if you had any uh, any any neat ideas from the, from yeah the I mean I think it's very initially the film was actually called 2060 and then the more <laughs> I researched I went that's just it's impossible. No one we just don't knows. know. What's we don't know. On the horizon, do yeah. We? And it was actually yeah. too far away, I think, for people yeah. to care enough because a yeah. lot of people wouldn't, might not be around then, or the others. You know, it's just anything could happen by then. So, so that's but, why you put it in your daughter's lifetime. Correct. Because, you know, and pull it yeah. right back. Yeah. Yeah. So look, but I would say that I, um, I think what we're going to be forced into. I think, as we said, climate change is one issue. Um, our soils is another issue. Like the, the UN says, we've got about sixty years of topsoil left. We know that we're overusing resources. We're doubling what the earth can use. So we're going to have to shift to more sharing or circular economies. So I think these things are going to force changes that we probably can't even see yet. And I think we'll get to a point where, as much as we're developing and moving forward, we're going to have to also be smarter in the way that we scale back and, and do things very differently than we are now. I mean, I don't think we can have this endless growth model. We have to think about how we are measuring our success very differently because, again, we're getting feedback from a system that says you can't keep doing what you're doing. You're going to fly off the cliff if you keep doing this. So this is why I love regenerative agriculture. I would consider that a very complicated, exciting, emergent technology, but it's a biological technology and there's so much to learn about that life back in the soil and how it works that I think that's probably got to be more of a direction we go, but there'll be a lovely balance where we'll have the technology where people will be able to scan their barcode on a, on a food item, they'll be able to see the supply chain, but they'll also be able to see the mineral and vitamin quality of the soil that their food was grown in. So that'll really change, I think, the industry in terms of that transparency and how farmers are growing their food. Because the chats I've had, especially with this younger generation coming through, they're already looking for those kind of things. They want to know how the animals are treated that they're going to eat. So they're going to sort of really change the thinking around this stuff. So I do think uh, there's going to be quite a disruption in, in agriculture in the same way that's happening in energy now. Obviously, the automotive industry is going to go through its own challenges as well. Yeah. But I think agriculture um, will change as well quite dramatically. Yeah. yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. Mm. Well, I've kind of asked the question a little bit, which is uh, food farm future. Mm. What's the vision? You've kind of presented a bit of a, uh, a vision for that. So, yeah, um, I guess you know, as you've alluded to, how, how do we how do we just get more efficient in our system so that we're not, you know, we're using food, we're not wasting as much food, for example. We don't have thirty percent food waste globally. We, we're planting much foods that are sequestering carbon. That's become 
much more in the mainstream. I think that'll happen in the next five or ten years. So, you know, more perennials might even move away from mono, monocultures and start to do more um, diverse systems. I know that groups like General Mills in America now are pledging to have a million acres of regenerative farms by 2030. So I think our practices are going to change. Yep. Um, and I think that's a good thing because we know that I mean, you can't have plant human health without plant health and you can't have plant health without soil health. And so the more we make that connection of getting those soils right, as you know, you know, all these benefits happen from getting the carbon out of the atmosphere to retaining water, all the things we need to be doing. Um, and I just think that'll just become common sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's also a little bit around, you know, the phase of society. So mm. here in Australia, I guess we've been used to endless growth, you know, mm. pioneer kind of days that land was endless yeah. and also in the US as well. You yeah. know, you, you pushed the frontier, you went out west that's and right. just kept on going and you had new land. Yep. And that's only one or two generations yeah. uh, away. Whereas in, you know, some of the Scandinavian countries, you've had uh, you know, a much more constrained system for yeah. generations. So yeah. some of those areas have really realized how to live sustainably because they've had to, that's because right. there's not huge tracts of land <laughs> uh, available for development. But also if you yeah. look at places like India, like Kerala, Mm. Um, then uh, female education and educating young women has been the major shift. So, look, I look forward to uh, the next next film and uh, the next uh, kind of topic area because this is societal and environmental and global change together but prioritised around solutions. Yeah, 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 that's it. And I think we just need to desperately get those into the mainstream more. That I think, that, as you said before, that, that apocalyptic narrative is shutting people off, they're disengaging, and the way to bring them back is to sort of show them the potential of what a future could be. Like, what does it look like on the other side of this crisis? It's a crystal ball. It's a crystal yeah, ball, yeah. and it's, a, it's reframing it as an incredibly exciting opportunity to actually fundamentally transform how we interact with each other and all of our living systems, and who wouldn't want to be alive during that transition? So it's just important we sell that well, because as you know, we're up against a, a, lot, of, a lot of storytellers that are telling us a different <laughs> story, um, and that's what this is, I think. This is a battle of narratives, and I think we've got to use, um, use all the skills we have to excite people about what's possible. Fantastic. Thanks, Damon. No problem. I'm Andy Lowe from the University of Adelaide, and we've been speaking with Damon Gamow, recording from Evocag the Asia-Pacific region's largest agri-food tech event, brought to you by AgriFutures Australia. Food Futurists, a podcast talking about amazing global food solutions.